God bless you guys this morning. My name is Josh, uh, as Kristen mentioned, and I have the honor of speaking with you today. I'm uh, part of the leadership team here at the church and the preaching team. and uh, Church planning intern, me and my wife with an eye toward church planning in Austin in the future. And, uh, and so I'm super excited to, to be able to speak with you today. Also, as Kristen mentioned, Pastor Peter's in Columbia. We wish them well and pray they get back safely and soon. But for today... For today, we're in our third week of our Rise and Fall sermon series. It's kind of a uh, survey of the lives uh, of Israelites, of the Israelites' kings, to see kind of what they did well, what they did bad, what that means for us, that kind of thing. Now, last week, Pastor Peter preached about David, the life of David, and he displayed this moment of weakness in David's life where he was actually uh, drawn in uh, by this woman named Bathsheba, not drawn in by what she would do per se, but by his own uh, desires. Uh, the, the takeaway from the, the sermon was that if we aren't busy fighting God's war, the devil or the enemy will drag us into his battles. Uh, now, the great part of last week is that we saw David repent and turn his heart back to God. Now, this week, what we're actually going to explore is Solomon, his son. And Solomon is a very misunderstood king, but he's one that's a great example of what it looks like to start well and end poor. So he's the exact opposite of what we talked about last week. And if you have gone through Establish 101, our class in the back, you've heard me say, um, we hope that you finish the process of establishing well. Now, the curious part to that is that right before that, I say establishing is a lifelong process. So to finish establishing your faith well means that you die well. And that's our hope for you. It's not a, that was just like a good, nice procession of people. That was, that was beautiful. Um, it, We hope you die well, because death is a reality. We're all going to die. It's taxes and death, right? These are the guarantees of life. But here at the Springs, our honest God hope for you is that you die well, that you live your life every day growing, clinging to Christ, growing more into his uh, image so that you would pass on from this world and greet him a friend. Greet him a son, a daughter. Now, Solomon is the opposite of this. We see him kind of, his life degrade over time. And so we're, we're going to take some time to read scripture. If you know me, that's like my favorite thing. So. Um, but now the, the thing is, I, I want to give a, a bit of a qualifier here. You're hearing us talk about entire people's lives in the span of 40 minutes. So we're not going to get to cover everything. But today we're going to be reading out of 1 Kings 10 and 11. And even though we're not going to be able to cover everything in Solomon's life, I urge you to go and read more about Solomon's life. It's in 1 Kings. It's in Chronicles. Go ahead and go read that for yourself, okay? Now, we're going to be reading 1 Kings 10, starting at 21, and we're going to read three verses from 11 as well. Now, if you would, stand with me in reverence to God's word this morning. I'd appreciate that uh, as we go ahead and get started. All of King Solomon's drinking cups were gold, and all the utensils of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. There was no silver since, there, since it was considered as nothing in Solomon's time, for the king had ships of Tarshish at sea with Hiram's fleet. And once every three years, the ships of Tarshish would arrive bearing... Gold, silver, ivory, apes. I've never understood the apes part, but peacocks 
King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the world in riches and in wisdom. The whole world wanted an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. Every man would bring his annual tribute, items of silver and gold, clothing, weapons, spices, and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen and stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar as abundant as sycamore in the Judean foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and Kui. The king's traders brought them from Kui at the going price. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 15 pounds of silver and a horse for nearly four pounds. In the same way, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of Aram through their agents. The last three verses in 11. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them and they must not intermarry with you because they will turn your heart away to follow their gods. To those women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines and they turned his heart away. As you're being seated, if you would pray with me. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Uh, We pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you would have for us, Father, but that you would also allow us to receive in a way that glorifies you and draws us to yourself. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, today's text. Today's text actually shows the kingdom of Solomon from like a bird's eye view. Right, We get this glorious picture painted of Solomon uh, in his kingdom having silver and gold and all these things. But this isn't where Solomon is introduced. Solomon is introduced in 1 Kings, you know, 10, chap- 10 chapters or so back. And he's actually the son of Bathsheba and David. Now, if you were here last week, that should be ringing. Like, you should be like, what? Right, like Bathsheba, and that's like, that was mad drama. Like, just a couple, it's a book ago. That's a beautiful example of how God can take the ugliest messes in our lives and make something beautiful out of them. But that's not today's sermon. That's for another day. Um, Now, he was David's son. He inherited the kingdom from David, and he really inherited in what would have been kind of described as the golden age of Israel. They have money. They have, you know, horses, the kingdom. They're making alliances with people because everyone's wanting to come to them now. It's not that Israel has to fight and scrape by to survive. Everyone's like, Israel... I mean, it, she's the pretty girl at prom, you know, like it's, 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 it's the golden age. So what we end up seeing, though, is that Solomon's a pretty good king. When we see his introduction, we see that he's worshiping God. Um, he's building a temple. He's building a temple to God uh, he, so that the Israelites won't have to worship in these high places anymore. When they enter the promised land under Caleb and Joshua, after leaving Egypt and wandering in the wilderness, God instructs them to tear down these high places where gods had once, uh, other gods had once been worshipped. But there's no temple to worship God in right now. So God says, okay, you worship me there, and that's okay for the time being, but when a temple is built, you have a place to worship me now. And Solomon's building this temple, He's worshiping God. The Bible in, in Isaiah, I mean in Isaiah, it's way off. First Kings 3. Uh, and like I said, we're trying to get a whole man's life into 40 minutes. So we're not going to get to go and read everything. But I encourage you, please don't trust me. Go read it. 
Okay, go read it. I encourage you with everything inside of me to go read it. In 1 Kings 3, we see that Solomon uh, makes, uh, he goes to Gideon, to the high place of Gideon, where we learn in 1 Chronicles that the, the tabernacle of the Lord is set up. Back in the wilderness, uh, God would, would, would meet the Israelite people at the tabernacle. His, his presence would descend like a cloud and Moses would go in to the tabernacle and he would face God. He would communicate with God and God would communicate with him and God would be amongst his people. And this very tabernacle was set up at this high place in Gideon. So Solomon goes. Solomon goes and he offers a thousand burnt offerings and everybody's like, praise God. And that night, God visits Solomon in the dream and says, Solomon, what do you want? This isn't like a what do you want, like, you know, like this kind of what do you want, not like a puff your chest out what do you want. This is blank check from dad, what do you want? And the thing is, it's not, it's different than like your dad going, what do you want for Christmas? This is like Bill Gates asking you what you want, right? This is, but more so, um, if you could imagine that. And Solomon looks at God and he says, God, you were faithful to my father, David. You were faithful to him even to give him a son to take his throne. But I, Solomon, I'm just a little boy. Now, he was a young man, but he was trying to communicate. I don't have a mind to lead your people. So, Lord, give me an understanding heart. Give me wisdom so that I can lead your people, a people so great. And God is just like, yes. You know, God is like, this is the best response. God's response is like, absolutely. And because you haven't asked for so many other things, I'll give you those as well. But as long as you keep your statutes, my statutes, the way your father David did. Now, that should confuse us because last week we learned about David's life having this huge moment of weakness where he falls in murder, adultery, right? Like his life is someone that we would not really think like, hey, if you behave like David, I'll... I'll honor you. But I think it's more than just this moral or ethical demand. It's, it's him saying, if you, if you tether your heart to me the way your father did, and even in the moments of your failure, you come to me and you repent the way your father did. Absolutely. And this is where we start to see a bit of Solomon a little more clearly. Now, if you're reading the Bible for the first time, At this moment, when God responds to Solomon, you should probably be getting a little bit hype. You should start getting a little bit excited because you're like, man, God is is fulfilling a promise here. God's fulfilling a promise he made to David in 2 Samuel 7. And I remember when I got saved, my, my dad preached the gospel, and he always had so many good theological questions. He was a pastor, and so he, he filled my head with a desire to know the truth. And so when I got saved, I took this book, I opened to the first page of Genesis, and I was just like, I'm just going to read. I'm just going to read, because if this God is as real intellectually as he is spiritually, emotionally, the way I feel him, I want to know who he is. And I ended up reading into 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and they ended up becoming some of my favorite books, the books that documented the life of David. And one of the parts that stood out the most was when uh, 2 Samuel, David wants to build God a temple, just like his son is right now. And God, through the prophet Nathan, comes to David and says, no, you're, you're a man of war, David. Your blood is on your hands. You won't build me a house. You won't build me a house. But then he goes on to make him a promise. And he says, but you, you, you'll have a son, and he'll build me a temple, and he will establish your throne forever. 
big promise. So as you keep reading, and I kept reading, I got to this point right here, and I was like, man, Solomon's building a temple? Like, he's, he's engaging with God beautifully? Like, he's asking for God all the right things, and God's like, you know, it, it, it's, it's incredible. Not to mention, he has this gift of wisdom. Is this the promised king? Is this the one that, that's going to show up in this promise? Like, is he going to fulfill this? And man, look at God being God. This is awesome. Now, there's always just a little something off about Solomon, though. There's always something just a little bit off. And as you keep reading, you end up seeing that Solomon begins to, to weary and tarry from his God. Uh, we end up seeing in the most heartbreaking way that this is not the promised king that God had promised David. This isn't him. He's building a temple, that's for sure. But, but he's not building the temple. And in addition to that, his heart isn't tethered to God. Not even the way his father David's is. It's heartbreaking when we see it, but it's the reality of the situation. And, and in fact... Way back in, in, the, in the wilderness with Moses, God had already understood this would not be my king. This is a king, but this isn't my king. Way back in Deuteronomy, he had already planned for there to be a king that would be his king over his people. It wasn't going to be Solomon, but Solomon had everything that we would want in the king. The Israelites had silver as though it was stone. And everything was great, and the, 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 there was a golden age in Israel. But was he God's king? Now, in Deuteronomy 17, God writing to Moses has, has a bit to say about what his king would look like. Now, specifically in verse 16 and 17, he says this, However, he, my king, God's king, must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses for the Lord has told you you were never to go back that way again it's getting kind of close to home now hold on that's uh he must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray and this is hitting real real close to home for Solomon guys hold on and he must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. Man. You see, the promised king wouldn't gather very much gold for himself, but Solomon looked at his kingdom and said, I want every single utensil and cup gold. The promised king wouldn't acquire very many horses for himself, and they especially wouldn't come from Egypt. Solomon, Solomon said, no, you know what? I, I, I want 1,400 chariots, and I want 12,000 horsemen, and I want them to come from Egypt. The promised king wouldn't acquire very many wives for himself. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines because, Moses wrote, because they will lead his heart away from God. And the last verse we read today in 1 Kings, it says, and Solomon's heart was taken from God. It drifted away from God. Now, the author of 1 Kings knows, as we're reading this book, 
we start to have our hopes built up when we start reading about Solomon. And maybe this is the promised king. Maybe this is the one that's going to fulfill that promise to David on behalf of the nation of Israel. But then he goes back and finds Deuteronomy, points back at it from hundreds of years before, and assures us, no, this is not our promised king. You see, as I mentioned, there's something a little bit off about Solomon. You know, he, he, he worships God, yeah, but we would, we would find out later after he finishes building the temple that he goes back to the high places and he begins to build altars to other gods for his wives. While he's building the temple of God, he's also building himself a massive palace. There's always something in Solomon that says, I'll obey you, but only how I choose to obey you. And if you don't know what that means, it means you don't obey at all. And there's something crafty about Solomon. He, he, he utilizes this beautiful gift put in his hands of wisdom to acquire so much. And he builds up his kingdom. He builds it up for his glory. But then he gives himself to the very things that God has blessed him with. The riches, the glory. He sees women. He takes them as his own. He gives himself over to these things and they become his God deep down in his heart. And even though he has so much of it, this is the same man that in Ecclesiastes would write, out of all the things I've seen and all the things I've had, it's all vapor. It's all vanity. What is a man's life but a vapor in the wind? It wasn't that God had given Solomon bad gifts. It was that Solomon had taken good gifts in the hand of a corrupted man filled with sin, and he had corrupted the good gifts that God had given him. That was Solomon's issue. Now, there's one of two ways, one of two directions we can go at this moment. Okay, guys? I'm going to give you a peek into my mind as I'm preparing these sermons and stuff like that. Um, we can either go, all right, so we've seen how faulty Solomon is. Now let's examine how we can grow and learn from Solomon's life. And let's get like some, some points that we can really apply to our lives so that we can understand how to live a life better than Solomon's life. And I'm not going to lie, I, I, if I do that to you today, I feed right into the culture that's already prevalent in our world. A culture that says, okay, um, I, can, I can be better than Solomon and I can live up to God's standard better than him. Just show me how and I can do it, I promise you. A culture that looks at myself and ourselves and says, no, I, I can do this. Just let me know how I can do it and I promise I will be able to do it. Self-reliance, and that's, that's, that's almost like a root of idolatry. So that's the worst thing I can do for you today. And I'm not going to do that. Because in reality... We in this room right now can't learn much from Solomon's life because our life is Solomon's life. I can't look at you and say, hey, learn how to be better than Solomon because all of us stand condemned of the very thing Solomon stands condemned of today. Solomon receives good gifts and he begins to, to, to uh, corrupt them in the hands of a sinner. And in this room today, every single one of us is guilty of that. You and me alike. God's placed good gifts in our hand. And because we are bound to sin, we have corrupted them. 
and we have experienced the pain of others corrupting them. Let me just give you a couple of examples, right? So that way you're not just like, hey, this guy. Um, <laughs> let's go with just the thought of life. God gives us the, the gift of life to wake up to see, to love, to breathe. And he says, and in this world I'm going to give you, I want it filled with my truth and my goodness. And in that moment, we take that beautiful gift of life and say, now I'm going to lie. And to us, we go, man, I've lied, but I'm not a liar, right? I'm not even going to comment on that anymore. And in a moment, we corrupt the good gift of life that God has given us. We break the unity that he desires to have with us. And in that moment, we separated from God. Not just separated, but made an enemy because we've now effectively worked against God and his kingdom. In one moment, just with the very life I have, I've been guilty of what Solomon is guilty of. Our, for married folks and, and parents, our, our families are a great example of this. God gives us the beautiful gift of our wives, our husbands, and our children, and he wants them to be shining beautiful examples of how God interacts with man and display his patience, his kindness, his graciousness. And we begin to utilize them and and use them like they're trophies to put a pressure on kids and family and wives and spouses that make them the place of God and crush them under our own expectations for them. And single people, I hope you're listening. There's nothing wrong with being proud of your wife, being proud of your kids, but guy. By golly, don't define yourself by those things. You're defined already. In Christ, when you define yourself by these things, you put a weight on them that they can't bear. And you crush them. And your sin is that you were given a good gift in family and you corrupted it. Just in your parent, I mean, in your, your spouse and your kids. See, we're guilty of this, and we've experienced the hurt and pain of others corrupting the good gifts God has given them. We have contributed to the corrupted world that we have experienced hurt from. We can't learn anything from Solomon's life because, beloved, our life is Solomon's life. He couldn't be the promised king in Israel to give peace and prosperity that they had been promised. He couldn't fulfill all that God had required of him. And you and me are not the king or queen of our lives that are going to bring all of God's desired fruits for us. Now, it's really quiet. So, uh, and the thing is, it's really quiet because you guys are like, man, this is great, right? Like, this is, it's real encouraging, man. Um, I'm glad I brought my friend today. Uh, uh, well, let me... Uh, let me, let me take a moment to encourage you, okay? Just because you're not the promised king, queen, and just because I'm not the promised king, and just because Solomon wasn't the promised king, that does not mean there's not a promised king. That doesn't mean there's not a promised king. Christ fulfills all of what God had required. and So much more on his behalf and on mine. He lived the life 
that I couldn't live, that you couldn't live, that Solomon couldn't live. And he died the death that we all should have died with no guilt and no reason to have died. But he gives himself on our behalf and he rises from the dead. And he offers and extends new life to us. And let's just look back at at Deuteronomy 17 for a second. Let's just look back there. The promised king in Deuteronomy isn't supposed to amass very much gold and silver for himself. Jesus leaves the riches and splendor of heaven to be born in a manger with nothing. The promised king isn't supposed to amass very many horses for himself. Every gospel account of Jesus entering Jerusalem says he has to borrow a colt because he doesn't have a horse of his own. The promised king isn't supposed to have very many wives so that his heart won't be taken from God. Christ has one wife, his bride, his church, us, this room, all of the people around the world worshiping and gathering together to honor and worship God today. And he is obedient to his father, Father God, even unto death to redeem his people. That's the promised king, not just of Israel, but of the world. Such a mighty, gracious, powerful king. Now, check my time real quick. Uh, now, you, I'm hoping in your mind there are some red flags going off. Because I just said that our lives uh, have the propensity to corrupt good gifts from God. That we contribute to the hurt of the world and we have experienced the hurt and pain of the world in others corrupting good gifts. I know you've been hurt. I've been hurt. But we've also hurt. It's important to see that it's a, it's a team effort here. Now, It's important for us to understand that we have the propensity to corrupt these good gifts. And I just said that Christ rises offering the gift of new life and forgiveness of sins. And I hope that raises some red flags. And if it doesn't, you're either not listening or maybe you don't think critically. And if it's the second one, that's fine. If you're not listening, that's unexcusable. Um, But it should raise some red flags that, that I'm saying God offers gifts, but I just got through saying we corrupt good gifts. So where does it leave us? Where does it leave us? Um, this, is, this is exactly what happens in Romans 8 and Romans 9. Go look it up. Paul says that there are individuals saying, should we sin more that God's grace could be made much of? And Paul's like, no. No, that's the opposite of what you should be doing. But again, good gifts in the hands of corrupted men. So no, not at all. God, we should come to the Lord in repentance and we should turn away from our past, turn away from our sin and in faith embrace and depend on this beautiful promised king. But I think that question is still warranted and I think it's what Paul had in mind when he was writing in 2 Corinthians 4. 
He said this. In verse 7, now we have this treasure. We have this treasure. We have this new life. We have this redemption and this forgiveness. We have this treasure in clay jars. If you don't know what that means, clay jars in that time, they were... Uh, what can I equate them to now? I don't know. They were, they were, they were like a cash car. I mean, you, you use them every day. You use them every day, and you intended to use the mess out of them, right? They were dirty. They were used. They potentially could be broken. Uh, if in nothing else, they were by far something you would never think. I would never think I need to hide my treasure in this clay jar. Like, right? Like, if you're in a car that you bought cash and it was like old and beat up and the locks didn't work, you wouldn't be like, I'm going to put my most valued possession in this. That's never, that's never the equation that you would arrive at. Yet, Paul here, seeing that our lives look like clay jars, we've been beat up. We've experienced the hurt of the world. We can be a little used up and a little broken. And he says, But now this treasure is in these clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. When we examine the condition of Solomon's heart, remember in the very beginning that the statutes demanded by God on Solomon was not that Solomon would be perfect, but that Solomon would follow his statutes the way his father David did. Not that David was perfect, but that David's heart was tethered to God. And in the moments that David failed, he repented. This never marked the life of Solomon. Because it's not supposed to mark our lives. Our perfection and our self-reliance That's not what our lives are supposed to be marked by. I hope at the end of our days, no one looks at Josh and goes, man, that guy was really awesome. I hope they look at me and go, man, that guy was really marked by God. His life expressed God's goodness and graciousness. And when he failed, he made it known that it was only by God's mercy and grace that he was able to keep going. So when you come to Christ now, you receive this gift. It's not that you all of a sudden become perfect, but that you now look and celebrate the perfection of another. That my life now can celebrate the fact that in my imperfection, the perfect loved me and died for me because of my imperfections. I can live my life celebrating that fact. And this is important for us to think about because I am not ignorant to the fact that in this room today, there's some individuals that have come to this church. They have teased and flirted with the idea of Christianity. 
uh, and really offering and giving ourselves to God in faith and repenting of our past life and giving ourselves over to this new life in Christ. But there's something in the back of their minds that says, but what about tomorrow? What about tomorrow when this day's done in this room and I mess up again? Is God going to love me then? And am I still going to be worthy then? Um, and I bring this up because this is a part of, of my story. This is a part of where I come from. Uh, as I mentioned, my dad pastored for years. I uh, heard great gospel preaching. Uh, and I also understood what it looked like to be a Christian. Uh, and so when I was 18, and some of you guys have heard this before, but there's also a lot of new faces in here, so I'm going to tell the story again. Um, when I was 18, a high school girlfriend broke up with me. And in my 18-year-old mind, this was the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> and so I proceeded to lose myself in my own passions. It didn't drive me to do something it revealed the sinfulness of my heart that was already there. So I started pursuing. It felt like all the things my dad told me not to do. Like I looked at my own life and I was like, dude, every single thing he told me not to do, I've pretty much done now. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And I remember coming to church and a couple years later, man, like when I came to faith, it was, I think, mid-2010. I was about 20 years old, seven, almost eight years. I mean, yeah, seven, almost eight years ago. Um, I remember coming to uh, church and sitting there and feeling the effects and the weight of my own sin. You know, the hurt of, of understanding that I, I tried to fill my life and give myself over to all of these things, the, these, these good gifts, friendship. Right? I had friends. But I mean, I corrupted the mess out of those gifts. I was like, friends, let's go do sinful things. relationships, I mean, like, the whole thing, school, I was, like, not even paying attention in school, I wasn't stewarding that well at all, all these good gifts that God had put in my hand, I corrupted them, and I felt the weight of that in my own life, and so I felt this big, and I remember I would come to church, and I'd feel the weight of that, feeling this big, and the weight of my sin, but I'd be a little resistant, because I would think to myself, tomorrow, I'm not going to be perfect, so why come? And I specifically remember one Sunday I sat down and I was crying. And they were like talking about money afterwards. It was, people were like, that guy is so greedy. But it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that. It was literally just that I, in that moment, was sitting there and thinking to myself, man, I, am, I can't believe that I'm still loved by God as I am in my position. And those same seeds of the gospel that my dad had communicated to me and the church has communicated to me, that reading the Bible had communicated to me, of being redeemed not by what I've done, but having the, the faith to depend on what Christ has done, to celebrate his life in the midst of my life, started kind of pulling at my heart again. And I'm going to be honest, I resisted it that day. That Sunday came, and that Sunday went. And a couple of days passed, still in agony. But a couple of days later, 
I understood that this was no longer something I could live with. And I went to that same building. Nobody in it, no church service, but I got down on my knees and I just confessed my life to God. And I depended on him to be and do something that I could not do and that I could not be. I depended on him to be the promised king that he is so that I could take the weight off of me being the promised king I thought I needed to be. And so, uh, today, it, that's some people in here. Like, that's, it's not even questionable whether that's some people in here. I know because I was the person sitting there. And so I, I would love to close in a moment of prayer because this isn't something that just affects the non-believer. But I promise you, that there are individuals in this room that have claimed the word Christianity for years and still feel like every day they have to get up and prove something instead of getting up and celebrating what the promised king has done. 